Well, thank you. I appreciate the, uh, the ability to come and share from God's Word uh, with you this morning. Um, not to get political or anything, but I, I, did, uh, I did have to put my car up for collateral when I stopped to get gas, so it was, uh, <laughs> it was, a, it was a rough rough one. Um, we're, all, we're all hurting at the pump, that's for sure. Uh, it's just uh, pretty crazy, pretty crazy times that we live in. Um, I uh, have been in ministry uh, for a long time. I, I started uh, as, a, as a student pastor when I was 19 years old and uh, had been in ministry ever since. Um, I uh, uh, was a senior pastor in Washington, Illinois. Some of you may remember Washington from a few years back uh, when a tornado uh, came through our town. That tornado hit about six months after I uh, had become the senior pastor at First Baptist Church in Washington. And so, um, so I, I got to participate in the recovery efforts of, of that. I resigned from that position in August of last year and um, quickly found out that, you know, a master's degree in theology um, doesn't do you a lot of good in the real world. And so uh, I had trouble finding a job, and, and I have six kids, three of them are adopted, and, and I thought, what in the world am I going to do? Um, I found a job, uh, uh, and then I found another job, and the Lord, Lord takes care of of you, that's for sure. I, I'm, I'm putting in uh, about 50 hours a week right now uh, at my job, and uh, so I quickly also learned that how uh, much more difficult it is when you're working a full-time job and then you try to prepare a sermon. So, um, but uh, I'm, I'm excited uh, to be here to share with you all this morning. In just a few minutes, we'll be in the book of Hebrews chapter 4, and we're going to look at verses 14 through 16, if you want to find your way there in your, in your scripture, we'll be kind of referring back to that uh, throughout the message. As I'm sure that you've probably already seen since you're working through the book of Hebrews, um, is the fact that the book of Hebrews is packed full of theology. Uh, but the author of Hebrews does not write simply as a theologian to his audience, but he also writes as a pastor. In fact, in chapter 13, he will describe his letter as his word of exhortation. We know that the author has focused on Christ's superiority to all things. In Hebrews chapter 1 and chapter 2, he is superior to the angels. In chapter 3, uh, Christ is superior to Moses. In chapter 4, Christ is superior to Joshua. And now that we come to the end of chapter 4, the author is showing that Jesus is actually superior to the Old Testament sacrificial system and the Levitical system, and specifically that Jesus is superior to Aaron. Martin Luther said about these verses, after terrifying us, the apostle now comforts us. First, we are terrified of the prospect of falling away from our faith, and then we are comforted and motivated to persevere in our faith. There are two things that nearly every Christian struggles with in their Christian life, and they are perseverance under trial and prayer. Both are connected to each other. If we're going to persevere in our faith, then prayer is essential. 
We have seen in Hebrews chapter 3 that enduring and persevering faith is a mark of genuine saving faith. Prayer is our line to God in the heat of the battle. Prayer is so vital that the enemy tries to keep us from it. If you've been a believer for any length of time, you have had those thoughts that come to you when the enemy comes and he says to you, God doesn't care about you. Or why do you waste your time praying for important things to do? One of the easiest things that happens to us as believers is we get discouraged in our prayer life. And when we get discouraged in our prayer life, we stop praying altogether. Which in turn keeps us from calling on the only one that can really truly help us. True prayer is an approach of our soul by the Spirit of God to the throne of God. It's not some mental exercise that we take ourselves through, but it's a spiritual communion with the Creator. The text is very encouraging this morning to us when we think of persevering faith and we think of our prayer life. Remember, the book of Hebrews was written to these Jewish Christians who are having thoughts of abandoning their faith in the face of persecution. He used the illustration of the Israelites not entering God's rest to drive his point home that we can succumb to unbelief and disobedience. And for this reason, we must be diligent about entering God's rest. And if we respond to God in faith and obedience, his word reveals our sin and shows us his ways. And now the author of Hebrews shows us how it is that we draw near to Jesus. And he is described as the great high priest who sympathizes with us. He gives us access to the throne of God and that that throne is a place of grace. Now there are two specific commands in these verses that we're going to look at. And they are hold fast to our confession in verse 14 and draw near with confidence in verse 16. These commands are not based on anything in us. But they're based entirely on who Jesus is. And since Jesus is our great high priest, the Son of God who has passed through the heavens, we must therefore hold fast our confession. Furthermore, since Jesus is our high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses, we should draw near in confidence to the throne of grace to receive mercy and help. The focus is on who Jesus is, and it in turn affects our ability to hold fast to our confession and to draw near. That prevents us from pride and thinking that somehow um, we just have to work hard enough to grow closer to God. That somehow if, if my relationship with, with God isn't right, then, then surely I just have to work harder and the author of Hebrews speaks against that and reveals to us that's not really the answer. So with that said, would ask that if you are willing and able this morning, would you please stand out of respect for the word of God and God as we read Hebrews chapter 4, 
verses 14 through 16. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. It says this to us this morning. This is the word of the Lord. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Father, thank you for this word. I pray that it would penetrate our hearts and lives this morning, not because I'm a great speaker or a good preacher or anything like that, but because you are a great God and you want to speak to us through your word this morning. Oh God, I pray that everyone that would hear this message would realize how it is that we draw near to the throne of grace. May we make much of Jesus this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The first thing I want us to see this morning is this. Since Jesus is our high priest, let us hold fast our confession. Since Jesus is our high priest, let us hold fast our confession. That's what it pretty much says, right, word for word in the verses we just read. The author of Hebrews is giving uh, to his readers a description of who Jesus is. He starts off by saying, since then we have a great high priest. But not only does he say that Jesus is a great high priest, he also says that Jesus passed through the heavens and that Jesus is the Son of God. And so we have a, we have a lot of stuff packed into this one verse. He gives us a description of who Jesus is, and then he tells us how to respond to Jesus, since he is the great high priest, and since he has passed through the heavens, since he is the Son of God. And what are we supposed to do with this? Well, we're supposed to hold fast our confession. So let's, let's look at that. Let's look at the idea of holding fast our confession and, and how specifically the author breaks this down. The first thing um, that, that I believe we see under this heading of holding fast our confession is that Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. Look at the language of verse 4. Since we have. Now that word have doesn't really seem like much, right? We, we read it and and it's just the word have. We use it in our language all the time. But in the Greek, it is what is known as a present active participle. This is speaking of relationship. To have a personal or familial relationship with someone. And means that we, are, that we currently have a high priest. You see, Jesus wasn't like all the other high priests. Jesus wasn't like any other high priest. You see, all of the other high priests, they lived and they died. But not Jesus. Jesus lived, died, and then rose again. 
rose from the dead, never to die again. This is why there is no such thing as the Old Testament system of the priesthood. Jesus is the final priest between God and man. And Jesus will never die. And his priesthood is indestructible, according to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 17. Jesus is not a dead high priest, but he's a living high priest. He is alive, meaning he continues to serve as the high priest to this very day. Meaning, he still hears our prayers. He still guides us each and every day. He is still our mediator to God on our behalf every single day, Christian. Every day that you call out to Jesus, He hears you as the high priest presently. And that leads us to Jesus being at the right hand of God. Jesus is sinless. See that Jesus is sinless. Not only do we know that Jesus can sympathize with our weakness, but he is a sinless Christ. He's been tempted like we are, right? That's what the verse tells us. But did he sin? No. He's without sin. And we might, you and I might be wrongly inclined to think this verse as indicating that Jesus uh, being sinless makes him uh, somehow distant or somehow Jesus is unsympathetic, right? With us because we're a bunch of sinners. So how can, how can Jesus, who has never sinned, understand you and I who always sin? I mean, I don't know about you, but I, I sin a lot. You may, some of you may never sin, I don't know, but, but I sin a lot. And I, I know you're, the, oh, that's hard to believe, right? Well, you're supposed to be a pastor, but yeah, I sin a lot. And so we say, well, how does, does, how does Jesus, who is sinless, understand me? C.S. Lewis imagines someone objecting and saying that. If Jesus never sinned, then he does not know what temptation is like. He lived a sheltered life and is out of touch with how strong temptation can be. This is how C.S. Lewis responded. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people in one sense know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. Christ because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation actually means to completely resist. 
That great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon said this, Do not imagine if the Lord Jesus had sinned, he would have been any more tender towards you, for sin is always of a hardening nature. If the Christ of God would have sinned, he would have lost the perfection of his sympathetic nature. It needs perfectness of his heart to lay self all aside and to be touched with a feeling of the infirmities of others. Let me be clear, the one who resists temptation until the very end knows the full power of temptation and knows temptation in a greater way than the one who yields to temptation. When it says that Jesus was tempted in every respect like we are, it does not mean that that he experienced every single specific temptation that we experience, that would be impossible. Not only that, but Jesus was never tempted by indwelling sin because sin never indwelt him. But it does indwell us. Instead, Jesus was like Adam and Eve before the fall. And temptation came to Jesus from without, not from within. Yet he still knew temptation. In particular, he knew temptation through suffering. He knew what it meant to be cold. He knew what it meant to be hungry. He knew what it meant to be thirsty. He knew what it meant to be hot. He knew what it meant to be tired. Probably beyond what many of us have ever experienced. He knew what it it was like to have no place to lay his head. To have anguish in his soul and to have emotions. He knew what it was like to dread death. Think about it. From the manger to his ministry in Gethsemane to Golgotha to the cross, his temptation gets stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger. Yet he never sinned. He was mocked. He was distrusted. He was maligned. He was betrayed by those who were closest to him. And he never sinned. Satan leveled all of the power of hell towards Jesus to try to get him to sin. But yet, he never sinned. Which raises a theological question in verse 15. Is it even possible for Jesus to have sinned? First and foremost, let me be clear because recent studies have found that many Christians believe that Jesus did sin. So let's just be clear. Jesus never once committed sin. Hebrews 7.26 makes that clear. 1 Peter 1.18 1 Peter 2.22, we also know that the temptation that Jesus faced was real temptation. And we also know that Scripture tells us that that God can't be tempted with evil in James 1.13. So even though Jesus was truly man, he was also truly God. So how could he be tempted to sin, much less commit sin? Now I know some of you probably don't really care about this, but, but it's a vital truth to our faith, right? So we're going to break it down real quick. And to do so, we must look at the matter of Jesus being truly man and truly God. 
Jesus was one person with two natures. In other words, he did not have only a human nature and only a God nature, since sin involves the whole person and is an act of the person and not of the nature, Jesus could not have sinned, or he would have ceased to be God. If Jesus sinned, then God sinned. The fact that Jesus could not have sinned rests in the fact that he is not just truly man, but that he is indeed truly God. And God cannot sin nor yield to the temptation of sin, then how can his temptation be real? If Jesus could not have sinned, then how could Jesus' temptation be real? The answer to that is that Jesus, not by his divine power, but by his human nature, faced temptation to sin and relied on the power of the Father and the Holy Spirit to overcome it. In other words, Satan appealed to Jesus in his human nature to try to get him to sin. But Jesus, totally totally relying on the power of the Father and the Holy Spirit, had no desire to sin and therefore would not sin. The theologian Wayne Gruden puts it this way, The moral strength of his divine nature was there as a sort of backstop that would have prevented him from sinning. But he did not rely on the strength of his divine nature to make it easier for him to face temptation. Jesus' divine nature could not be tempted, but his human nature could be tempted. And I don't pretend to fully comprehend that. I don't pretend to fully wrap my mind around it, but I accept what Scripture says, that Jesus was tempted, and yet he never once sinned. And that he understands what you and I are going through. And he is able to come to our aid when you and I are tempted. So Jesus is our sympathetic high priest who is sinless. Therefore, you and I must be a people of prayer. As we look at verse 16, we see that it's packed with all kinds of rich truths for us. Then with confidence we draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. We're called to approach boldly in prayer, not because of who we are, but because of the kind of priest that Christ is. The throne of grace is an oxymoron to the people of this day. That When they're reading this, they don't really comprehend it. You didn't approach the throne in the ancient world of of with just some casualty and think that you're going to live. You came to the throne, which was a place of sovereign authority and judgment. If you approached the throne and the king and, did not, uh, and he didn't allow you to come, then you were gone. You for sure didn't come near the throne thinking that you were going to get some sort of sympathy from the king. But the author of Hebrews calls it a throne of grace. And he makes it clear that you and I were welcome to the throne. Do you remember Moses at Mount Sinai? If you've looked at your, your Old Testament, 
God says to him, Moses, you and the elders come forward, but tell the people to keep away from the mountain because if they or an animal of theirs touches the mountain, he will be struck down. Or how about the Ark of the Covenant? You ever read uh, the Old Testament and you're kind of reading along and, and you're reading about the Ark of the Covenant and no one is allowed to touch the Ark except for the Levites who were specifically uh, the people that were designed to carry it. And they used poles in order to carry the Ark and anyone, if they touched it, died. Poor Uzzah. All he did was reach out to steady it. Boom. Struck dead. Yet here it says we can draw near. We draw near through prayer. We talk directly to God the Father. We draw near to the throne. So I'm going to answer some questions for you that I believe um, this verse answers for us this morning. And that's this. Why should we pray? Why should we pray? And what should we expect from prayer? Why should we pray? Well, because we're weak. We're weak. We don't pray to God because you and I have everything together. And we know exactly what we're doing, where we're going in life, and we know everything that we need to know. We don't pray just because we need a little advice here and there on certain things. That could be why some people pray. We don't make our plans and say, God, bless this. That could be what some people do. God, I, I, I planned everything out. Now I just I just need you to I just need you to bless it. The real reason we should be praying is because we are weak. We don't want to hear that. Because it's just a truth that kind of, you know, fights against who we are. Especially men, right? Men don't want to hear that you're weak. You just, well, I'm strong and I'm this and I'm a big strapping fella or whatever. We don't want to hear that we're weak. And Jesus in John fifteen five, he says... Uh, without me, you can accomplish a lot, right? Isn't that what he says? Or, or um, you just need to get over the hump. Does he say, you are doing good. Give me a call whenever things get hard and you need me to step in and help you out. Is that what Jesus says? Just when things get tough, things get real hard, that's when you need to call out to me. No. Right? What does he say? Without me, you 
can do nothing. You can do nothing. Funny thing about that word nothing in the Greek. You know what it means? Nothing. It's amazing. A quantity of no importance. Without Jesus, we can do nothing of any importance. And when we come to the throne of grace in prayer, He doesn't belittle us. He doesn't say, oh, I told you so. So we're not ridiculed and we're not made to to feel foolish because of our weakness. He knows we are weak. He already knows it. And He welcomes us as a father welcomes his children when they come to his side because they are weak. When my little son or my daughter says, Daddy, I can't do this. I need help. I'm too weak. I don't stand back and laugh at them. I don't belittle them. I welcome them to my side. And I help them do it. Why pray? Because we're weak. We are weak. When should we pray? Well, when do we need help? Always. Right? We need help always. Every single one of us needs help at all times. We are not God. We have so many needs and so many limitations. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17, we are told to pray without ceasing. In Philippians chapter 5, verse 6, we are told, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, we are told, Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Prayer is our first response to every worry, every fear, every discouragement, every heartache, everything that we are faced in life. Prayer is to be our first response. We are to consciously and quickly turn every thought that enters into our mind into prayer. That's mind-boggling. That everything that enters your head, you're supposed to capture it and turn it into prayer? A lack of prayer calls us to be self-dependent. We say, I got this. I got this. Isn't that kind of our, what we quickly resort to, right? Guys, especially us, I got this. I got this under control. Let me tell you, nothing can make you feel more weak than to be the man of your house with six kids and lose your income. 
and say, how am I going to supply for my family? To, to have been doing something for almost 30 years of your, your life and to go, it's gone. But our first response is, I got this. I'll, I'll, I'll find a job. I'll do what I need to do. What do we do when things get hard? Do we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps? Or do we go to God in prayer? Prayer should be as natural to you and I as breathing. As you sit there and take a breath, prayer should be that natural. You know why most Christians struggle with being a people of prayer? Because we don't realize how needy we really are. We live in America. We don't have needs. Right? We have a nice house with a nice yard and two and a half kids. I know you can't have half a kid, but that's, that's the statistic. We have a job. We have food. We got this. The only time we need to call on the Lord is when things get out of control. And then we need to pray. You remember 9-11, right? We all watched in horror. Do you know what you're doing on 9-10? Do you remember where you were? Do you remember what you were doing? No. Were churches packed? Nope. Were people praying? Some were, I'm sure. And then 9-11 happened, right? And then everybody start, everybody floods the churches. You remember the scenes? I'm sure you do. I mean, it was all over the news. Churches were packed. And suddenly, it was okay to pray. Suddenly, it wasn't a big deal to be praying in public or out in the open. No one cared. It was okay to involve God's name in everything. Nobody was like, oh, oh no, they said God's name. How dare them? Didn't matter. But here's the issue, right? We're right back to 9-10 or worse. We depend on God for every breath that we take. Every meal that we eat. The truth of the matter is we are constantly and consistently in over our head every single day. Whether you recognize it or not, whether you think your life is going great or not, it takes one little thing to just come in and destroy you. And our need for God is great. Not just this partial need but a total dependence on God. When do we pray? Well, when we need help. And when do we need help? Always. Thirdly, how should we pray? How? Well, directly to God with confidence in Jesus. Isn't that what it tells us? How should we pray? Directly to God with confidence 
in this passage of Scripture who, who is the high priest that is being spoken of, that is superior to all. It's Jesus. And then in verse 16, what does the author say? Let us draw near through our, through our local priest by going to confession and confessing our sins to him. Is that what it says? No. That's not what it says. What does he say? Let us draw near. And that's it. That means us. That means every single believer. Our situation is absolutely hopeless. No human priest or any powerless pope can do anything to rectify our situation. But God declares over it that Jesus Christ became a high priest to come in and shatter our hopelessness and rescue us from our own despair. The beauty of this is that we, do, we don't have to go through some sort of human priest in order to draw near to the throne of God, nor do we draw near based upon our own merit or our own righteousness or because we have something great in us. We come with confidence to the throne of God because of the blood of Jesus Christ, who is our high priest, who has secured for us that spot. Access to the throne. Our confidence isn't based on on anything in us. It's not based upon how good I am, how much wealth I have, how well-to-do I am, how I dress, how I look. None of that matters. It's based on Christ. Charles Spurgeon said that God overlooks our shortcoming and even our poor prayers, just like a loving parent overlooks the mistake and the sentences of their toddler. I've heard people say, well, well I, I just can't pray. I can't pray. I can't speak well. It doesn't matter. Even when we've sinned in a terrible way, if we call out to God and confess our sins, He cleanses us, He heals us of our wounds, just like a parent cleans up and bandages the wounds of their child. There's Jesus. He says, you... You have access to me. Just come. Just come on. How should we pray directly to God with confidence in Jesus? Finally, what should we expect when we pray? Mercy and grace. Mercy and grace. What a wonderful promise. We find mercy and grace when we pray. Listen to what John Calvin said. The basis of this confidence is that the throne of God is not marked by a naked majesty which overpowers us, but is adorned with a name, a new name, that of grace. This is the name that we ought to always keep in mind when we avoid the sight of God. The glory of God cannot but fill us with despair. Such is the awfulness of his throne. Therefore, in order to help our lack of confidence and to free our minds of all our fears, the apostle closed with grace and gives it a name which will encourage us by its sweetness. It is as if 
He was saying, since God has fixed on his throne a banner of grace, of fatherly love towards us, there is no reason why his majesty should ward us off from approaching him. When we draw near, it's not for a scorning. It's not for having a need that we are not told. When we draw near, it's to for grace and mercy. We don't hear the high priest saying, I can't be troubled with your feeble little needs. Instead, we receive mercy and we find grace to help us in our time of need. We receive mercy for our past failures and grace to meet our present and future needs. We don't deserve it, right? We don't deserve the help we need. That's the beauty of grace. Is it's not deserved, nor is it earned. It's just received. And that's what we get. The word help there is a picture of, of running or coming to the aid of someone who is crying for help. Church, when your life is falling apart, and it seems like everything that you are being faced with is out of control, then I implore you to cry out to our sympathetic high priest and the throne of grace. There you will receive mercy. And you will find the grace to help you in your time of need. Mercy is a, a focus of God's tenderness towards us because of our misery that's caused by our sin. And grace is a focus on his undeserved favor towards us. Everyone that trusts in the shed blood of Jesus for the payment of their sins has access to the throne of grace which they receive, where they receive mercy and grace. This is the whole point of the Old and New Testament. God planned for a high priest. God planned for a savior. God planned for a redeemer. God planned for a helper that would show mercy and grace. You're not trapped. You need help. You don't deserve it. Neither do I. But we need it. I can't earn it. But I can have it. You can't earn it either. But you can have it. You can have it right now. And forever. By simply receiving it. That's it. Trusting in Jesus, the Son of God, as your high priest. He won't push you away. He won't ignore you. He won't scorn you. 
You know, a few months ago, my wife was having some, some issues where she was just tired all the time. You know, just, I mean, being married to me, I get it, but um, I'm exhausted. <laughs> but she was just tired all the time. And so I'm, I'm going to go to the doctor and figure out what's going on. She went to the doctor, and the doctor's like, oh, you know, it's, uh, let's run some thyroid checking and see what's wrong, see if there's something wrong with your thyroid. And they went in there, and, and they said, yeah, you, there's, uh, there's some issues there, so let's put you on some medicine. And they put my wife on medicine, and she didn't help her. And I said, well, let's, like, up the medicine. And so the, then they put her on this, this extreme dose of thyroid medicine, and it got worse. And the, the, the doctor said, well, you know what? Let's, let's do a, a scan. There, I don't feel anything, but let's do, a, let's do a scan, see what's wrong. And so they went in, and, and they did a, a scan and saw these lumps on, on her thyroid, the, the nodules, which is not a big deal. I mean, that's kind of a normal thing, you know? Um, and they said, well, you know, we're going to have to... Uh, we're going to have to probably go in and cut half of it out, or you can have a, a genomic testing uh, where we kind of pull part of it out and we, we figure out, you know, what the deal is. And so that's what we opted for. And she went through this genomic testing, and, and they were like, well, we're, we're over 50% sure that it's, it's cancerous. And uh, uh, it wasn't the, the good cancer of your thyroid that, you know, there is a good cancer of your thyroid that everybody pretty much recovers of, but it was the bad. And <clears throat> I can remember getting that, kind of that news and, and thinking, what in, the, what in the world, you know? And you think back, you're like, well, I just lost my job and, and you know, just found a new job and now my wife, she could have cancer, and you know, what, do you, what do you do? You do what you always are supposed to do. You do what is supposed to come just like breathing. You pray. You do what you were supposed to be doing before you heard that news, Right? You say, God, you got this. Whatever, whatever happens, if, if, if the news comes back that, that my wife has cancer and she's going to be dead in six months, may you be glorified. Now listen, you cannot pray a prayer like that unless you're already dependent on God. You can't. Because news like that would just ruin and wreck your life. You can't go to God and say, okay, God, if this is what you have, I'm okay with it. I'm all right with it. You can't pray those prayers. My daughter was born. She was three pounds, three ounces. She spent 40 days in the hospital. I'll never forget when she was born that day going in there and looking inside that incubator and seeing my little itty-bitty daughter. And I'll never forget 
putting my hand on that thing and saying, God, she's yours. She's yours. If you take her, she's yours. And if she lives, she's yours. Listen, you can't pray prayer like that if you're not already dependent on God. And I don't say these things so you're like, oh man, oh, he's super spiritual. No, I'm not. I say that to you this morning so you understand who Jesus is as our high priest. He is listening right now. And prayer should be just like breathing. And it doesn't have to be like you're speaking a prayer out loud all the time. It's capturing those thoughts and praying to God. Praying during this message. Praying when you walk out of here. Praying when you eat lunch. Praying when you drive home. It's this attitude. This capturing and praying. How do I apply this? How do I apply all of this stuff? Well, Jesus Christ is our high priest. Therefore, we hold fast to the confession of faith that we have. Jesus is who he said he was. And because he is who he said he was, we must refuse to allow our confession of faith to be robbed from us. Don't allow it to be robbed from you. Don't do that. In just a moment, we're going to just go to the Lord in prayer. I'm going to ask the musicians if they'll come up and softly play. I'm not going to do anything weird or anything like that, but I just want you to think about your faith this morning. Christian, we have allowed the culture to rob us of our faith. We've allowed the culture to silence us, to keep us from speaking the truths that God has for us. And we must wage war against anything that would rob us of our faith. Are you doing that this morning? Are you doing that? Or are you just a fair-weather Christian? Just go with the flow. And so does your faith. Just goes with the flow. Whatever causes the least waves, that's what you'll do. Even if it means denying your faith. I've watched friends be fair-weather Christians. Oh, they may not all out deny their faith, but they sure aren't going to stand up for it. I've allowed the culture to silence them. 
Don't be a fair-weather Christian. Don't be robbed of your faith. Secondly, I want to say this to you this morning. I like what John Piper said. Prayer is a wartime walkie-talkie for spiritual warfare, not a domestic intercom to increase the comforts of the saints. Are you a person of prayer this morning? You see, we don't pray to get more comfortable. Yet that seems to be what our prayers often are, to make us more comfortable. Lord, would you bless this? Lord, can you bring this into my life? Lord, could you do this? Like he's some magic little genie to help us get what we want out of life. It's not about how comfortable you are, Christian. It's about advancing the kingdom of God. We pray so God will grant us the supplies that we need in order to advance his kingdom. We pray with confidence in Jesus because we are weak and we always desperately are in need of God's help. We are in a spiritual war. We must hold fast to our confession. And so we pray. We must persevere. So we pray. Jesus is our high priest. So we pray. We have needs. So we pray. We want to receive mercy and grace. So we pray. I'm asking you this morning to wage war against sin and Satan. I'm asking that you would be a people of prayer. That you would be a church of prayer. And the gates of hell will not withstand it. If we pray. So how is your prayer life? How is your prayer life? Would you just take a few moments and bow with me? you just ask God to reveal in your heart this morning would you ask him God if am I a person of prayer and here's the beauty Christian he does not condemn you if you're not he says come to my throne of mercy and grace call out to me be dependent on me stop trying to pull yourself up stop trying to do it alone you are weak no condemnation only open arms to be wrapped in the loving arms of Jesus Christ our Savior and maybe this morning you don't know Jesus maybe you're listening online maybe you're here in this building and you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ I pray for you today 
that today would be the day of salvation. I pray that you would find someone and talk to them this morning. I pray that you would do business with the Lord this morning in your heart and in your life. Father, thank you for this church. Thank you for your love. God, thank you that we can come to you because you've passed through the heavens and you are right now our high priest seated at the right hand of God the Father mediating on our behalf and that, God, and that we can call out to you, Jesus, and have access to God the Father. Thank you that we don't feel condemnation when we call out. But God, you open your arms and we're embraced in the loving kindness of our Savior, the grace and mercy. And Lord, I don't I don't know these people. I don't know their heart. I don't know what their what their church life is like. I don't know any of that. But God, what I do know is that when we're a people of prayer, you do great and marvelous things. So I pray for that. I pray for that for this church. I pray for that for, for Cal. I pray for that for this city. This church will have an impact where they're planted and that you would be glorified. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ.